Endless Hustle presented by Doc Swinson's, the legendary whiskey blenders from Ferndale, Washington. I absolutely love Doc Swinson's, and if you haven't tried it, go to their website and check out their selection. All right, Endless Hustlers, episode 118 of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. As always, your fearless leader, Arthur Cade, here at the helm. We got an awesome triple header ahead for you. We're kicking off this episode with country music stars, Low Cash. This chat is one you do not want to miss. They have a brand new EP out called Woods and Water. These guys are a boatload of fun. You guys are going to just love this one. We then go to Better Call Saul star, Nacho himself, Michael Mando. He's also Voss, one of the greatest villains in gaming history in Far Cry. And they're actually celebrating 10 years of Far Cry and Voss right now. So they're releasing a ton of really cool content. And we're finishing up the episode with one of the stars of my favorite show, probably of the last 20 years, Succession. Arian Moyad, who plays Stewie on Succession, is joining us for an unbelievable chat. They're heading into their season finale this week, and we're chatting with them all about the success of the show. So a banger of an episode. Let's jump right into it. Here they are kicking it off. Country music superstars, Low Cash, brand new album, Woods and Water. All right, I got the guys from Low Cash on the Endless Hustle. Chris and Preston, brand new EP. Congratulations. I hate that Preston has a better hat than I do, but, you know, <laughs> it is what it is, man. Guys, hey, congratulations. You guys are having this incredible success. Tell me all about the new EP. Man, the new EP is uh, is firing up the charts right now. We are super stoked. Uh, I just checked. I, I promised myself I wasn't going to look at the charts this morning. I was just going to have breakfast with my kids and not worry about it. And then I went and I looked and I was like, oh, boy, it's number 11. And then it was number 10. And it's climbed all the way to number four. So that's enough to put a little bourbon in the coffee this morning. So let's go. I love it. That's amazing. I love that you're like, I'm definitely not going to look at the charts. Meanwhile, you're like checking your phone every two minutes. Yeah. I mean, I had how about you, Chris? Are you checking your phone every two minutes as well? Or are you just like, whatever? Dude, I don't have to. Preston texts me every second to let me know. So it's good. I'll have a heart attack if I look at the charts. I don't do that. I can't do it. I'm like, I want nothing to do with it. Just let me know if we make it to number one. So it's obviously good you're moving up the charts, but how would your mood be if you weren't doing well? What if it was like shitting the bed on right now? Well, you know, my wife, pretty that's, bad. that's funny that you say that because last night my wife said that maybe we should get a babysitter and go out to dinner on, on Friday night, on, on tomorrow night. And I said, maybe we should go out on Thursday night, when, when right before it's released, when I'm in a good mood. Because if Friday night rolls around and we're not having a good day, it's not going to be a good dinner. So, <laughs> But you know what? It's turning out to be an awesome day for us. And uh, people want to hear our music. And, and that's a blessing for us. So. I love it. So talk to me about the album because I, I to see the to see your evolution. I remember when you guys first started. Now you've become ultra successful. You have such a great story. But when you're writing an album like this, what kind of goes into the thought process of the whole thing? Um, me and Preston have always been like the positive guys. You know that, man. We've we've been around for a while. We always keep our music that positive energy, and we write the sad stuff. Don't get me wrong, we write it, but. We don't want, we want low cash to be those guys that when you turn on the radio for those three minutes, we got to know that that song is going to cheer you up in a way you're going to, you're going to, you're going to go into a journey into that song. And we all have those songs, man. Mine was Huey Lewis. 
if Huey Lewis comes on the radio, it's a great freaking day. And I want people to be able to say that with ours. So while this Woods and Water, like we were going to originally call ourselves Woods and Water. Like we'd probably be Woods and Water if we weren't low cash. So we finally got this, uh, this idea to make it an album then because I'm a big well, uh, water guy. He's a big woods guy. And nature's where it's at right now. Everybody, you know, just during this pandemic of 18 months, everybody wanted to get out and just relax and see what Earth's got and find the positive in life. And that's what this EP does, man. I love the name Woods and Water, by the way. I was just thinking, I'm like, that would be like such, it's like Simon and Garfunkel, Woods and Water. It's amazing. To ma- we might change, our name. Might change we, our name then. We might have a name <laughs> on the next album. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Well, good luck getting your label to approve that. <laughs> dude so i love all the guitars behind you by the way what, what is happening there man you know uh, over the course of our whole career in nashville um you know before i moved to nashville i couldn't afford a piano i couldn't afford a guitar i couldn't afford anything my parents never bought me nothing and so um you know we we just didn't have a lot of money growing up and so um when i got to nashville we got our first guitar uh, I'll show it to you. This oh, we got a piano too. I love it. I'm like in the home studio right now. Dude, this guitar right here, Chris, uh, Chris might not even remember this one. I don't know, but I we got it. Deal. I remember I didn't get one. We got a deal. Yeah, you did. We got a deal with Jack. Mm-hmm. And they gave us, uh, it was like our first year in town and they gave us a free guitar, each one of us. And it's made out of a Jack Daniels barrel. And it's really cool. Um, and so... I was like, man, I got my first guitar. And so I held on to it. And I was like, I'm going to put, I'm going to display that thing. And so I displayed it. And then the next thing you know, uh, you know, more and more guitars came in and I've only bought like one or two guitars in my life. All of these have been gifted or uh, endorsement deals or whatever it may be. And so that, that's kind of when, when I walk into my room and I see these guitars, I think about all the years and the deals that we've done and the success we've had. And, and it's not about like showing off. It's about like reminding myself, like, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a reminder of success in town. By the way, I've got one right behind me too. That is, if you see right there. So I yeah. just interviewed, I interviewed Collective Soul, the rock band. Love those guys. They were awesome. So I, I talked to Ed Roland, the lead singer, and they actually sent me, they love the interview so much. They sent me a signed guitar, bought me one or something. So oh, wow. they're like, what's your address? And I gave him my address thinking I'm going to get like a thank you card. And then all <laughs> of a sudden it's like a guitar shows up. I'm like, what the Dude, fuck? That's, that's cool. badass. That is that's bad. Those boys are really cool, man. Yeah. I mean, legends and just cool as shit. And the funny thing was, um, when the, when Norm Macdonald died, they were the, there was a huge, there was a super viral clip going around where, uh, he was on Conan O'Brien. They were the musical guests that night. So it was like the, the most hilarious shit. I'm like, what, what deja vu here? And like, they were awesome growing up. Speaking of which, like, who were some of the artists that influenced you guys? You mentioned Huey Lewis, but like, who were the guys and girls that made you want to become musicians? Man, I think Garth is definitely one of them. Uh, I remember I'm, I'm like I love 80s hair band man that was my that was my jams and Molly Crew and White Snake. I mean that's the first time I saw boobs for the first time I was like 10 or 11 at a at a White Snake Motley Crew concert I was like okay I want to do this the rest of my life <laughs> and uh so there's a lot of that in there and 
you know, but then country music just has the, the written lyric, man. It's, that's like people just relate to, especially now. And so Garth is definitely Babyface, Boys the Men, Frank Sinatra, Elvis. I mean, the Oak Ridge Boys, George Jones, Hank Williams Jr. It's all that combined in our music. Isn't it amazing? Boobs will make us do anything. It's crazy. It really is, dude. I was I mean, 11. What did I know? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, it wasn't about the music. It was about getting girls. And then he's like, ah, I kind of like the music part of it, too. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what happened. That's exactly what happened. So when you guys come to, to the music industry, you have a great story, and I've heard it before, but shit wasn't all like fantastic for you in the beginning like you guys really struggled right yeah man i mean we we set out on the road in my jeep grand cherokee the windows wouldn't go down and uh you know we pulled a u-haul behind us that we didn't know was stolen somebody told us they they're like, yeah man just use this u-haul it's it's paid for and so man it was a stolen u-haul and when the wheel falls off of a stolen u-haul and you're stuck on the side of the road you find out it's stolen real quick because, you know, the cops are showing up and all kinds of stuff. But fortunately, uh, man, we, we've gotten up and down the highways and, uh, and each year it just felt like we progressed a little bit and it was, it was building blocks for us. It was not an overnight success. Like you said, and I, th I think, uh, you know, you can't take any of it away from us because we built it that way from the bottom up. And so, you know, if we lost a record deal three or four years ago or we parted ways with some, you know, you know, business partner or something, it didn't really affect us too much because we we had already built that foundation where we could keep on moving. And I think that's a big credit to just being here today, releasing another album and enjoying the success. I want to talk some hockey with you guys because I saw you have a great relationship with the Nashville Predators. I know you've played at a game. I love their relationship with all the country music artists in the yeah. city. Talk to me about your fandom and your relationship with the Preds. That's UP. I'm a, I'm a lightning guy, so I got all the lightning guys on, we do on my have, side. <laughs> we do have a great relationship with the Preds. Um, you know, I mean, I live here in Nashville, so uh, we support the home team. And uh, But one thing that's really happened for us over the last few years chris moved to tampa so we're going to take a turn here because chris moves to tampa next thing you know gronk goes to tampa we become buddies with gronk and then all of a sudden the lightning the tampa bay lightning they start winning the stanley cup and chris uh, uh becomes friends with the lightning and next thing you know like two weeks ago we were drinking beers out of the stanley cup in tampa <laughs> And I looked at Chris, I drank, I drank, I chugged a beer out of the Stanley Cup. And I said, if I don't get COVID from this, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it was crazy, but what a night. And Chris, take it from there, man, because you know them boys. Well, I think the, the Preds, the cool thing about the Preds, we'll go to the Preds first. I, I, I do love that they love their country music. And I do love that they, you know, the, the fans and the country music are the same for them. I mean, Nashville and Tampa, they're very similar in the fan base, in their production, everything. I think the same people run it, uh, the production style of it. So it's really cool. But Tampa's definitely taking a liking. And I'm just going to say it now, man. We won the Super Bowl. We won the Stanley Cup. We made it to the World Series ever since I moved there. So 
I mean, is it a coincidence? Probably not. Is it a coincidence that Tom saw me move and said, I'm going to Tampa? I love how you Chris literally play. just took the thunder from Tom Brady and essentially <laughs> essentially proclaimed himself the, the, the savior of Tampa Bay. I could yeah, be. We just don't know it. Nothing. What is it like, though, when you get to play the Ford stage in Bridgestone? I've gotten to see so many acts there, and I just, both online, in person, whenever I've been at Bridgestone, it's been an amazing experience. What is it like for a performer? Man, I tell you, that energy feeling, like when they hit the goal, you know, and everybody goes crazy, and they're banging it. I mean, when you when you play that stage, and you're overlooking the ice, and you see all the jerseys and yeah, I mean, it's, it's surreal because, you know, they didn't even have a hockey team when we first moved to town and now you are feeling the synergy and, and it's a, and it's sort of like the ice and then the music and then the ice. And then, I mean, it's like this, this cool uh, woven like family, like Chris said uh, of hockey and country music and, I don't know. It just want, it kind of gives you goosebumps when you're standing there and overlooking everything. We played something similar uh, for, for Gillette uh, Stadium. They had us come in for the uh, Patriots-Packers game, and we played a sort of, sort of similar stage overlooking the crowd. And those kind of moments overlooking those arenas and those stadiums and those fields, it's kind of a pinch-me moment because you're like, whoa. Like we really have made it. This is awesome. So, so Chris, now that you're a converted Lightning fan, are you boys with all the guys over there? Do you have them like on speed yeah. dial? Yeah, I was. Uh, I was actually talking to Pat Maroon yesterday about the album coming out, and uh, he's he's hilarious, man. He wants to do his favorite thing is to sing Hootie and the Blow, Blowfish. Uh, let her cry. <laughs> That's his jam, man. So if we go anywhere, he's like, dude, play Hootie. I just want to let her cry. And he'll be like, let her cry. Be dude, like, it's the funniest freaking thing, dude. We'll be on stage and we'll be playing. And then you hear this voice, not in our ear, but in our ear. He has walked out. <laughs> he'll walk up, get in your ear and be like, play, let her cry. I'm going to sing it right now. And you're like, what the? It's awesome. And he does it. Well, he so gets Wait, is it, does Pat Maroon like travel with you guys now too? Is he literally like on tour show in Tampa? Everyone, we, it, yeah, it, he's great. Low cash featuring Pat Maroon. Hey, we, <laughs> we would not be standing here today if he traveled with us. We would drink double what we drink right now. Yeah, I mean, dude, he's unbelievable, and what an athlete. Those guys in general yeah. are just like they're beasts, man. NHL players. I interview everybody, and I can tell you. The NHL guys are the, they're just, they're the best shape. They are animals yeah, and every yeah. other athlete has the most respect for them. Yeah, it's true. We learned hockey one time. We took a hockey lesson in Canada. Preston and I, it's on, it's on our Instagram. It's the most funniest thing you've ever seen in your life. But we realized that day how hard it is. And that was only an hour and I couldn't walk for at least two days. No, it's even just getting on skates is just yes impossible like people are like oh he's not fast on skates or she's not fast and it's like go just balance yourself on ice skates on and you're we'll see how great you are right right i mean the only thing i did was fall on the ice and learn how to do a celebration and looks like a backstroke on the ice and i just kind of go down the ice on my back 
<laughs> we got to get the Preds to give you guys an ice skating lesson. I feel like, like we got to figure out that awesome. kind of crossover. Yeah, that That'd would be, be awesome. A songwriting and uh, ice skating crossover, and see see who bombs worse. I love it. <laughs> Idea for a show. I'm telling you, I, I'm I'm getting off the Zoom. I'm going to go pitch it to somebody right now. Let's go. Let's the pilot episode, low cash falling on ice, over and over and over again. But we'll make sure to <laughs> but we'll make sure to plug your album as you're going down. Yes. Be like, woods and water, woods and water. <laughs> That's great, guys. This has been an absolute pleasure. I just love you too. I love your music, oh, and I just. What I love about you guys is your authenticity. Like, you. you know, everybody's out there trying to be a brand. You're drinking because your album's number four on the chart. So Preston's lighting it up already. Chris is talking about White Snake and women. I love that <laughs> stuff, man. Like, and I, and I love that. I feel like that's the authenticity that your fans love. And that's why you've been successful. It's like you're good musicians and you have great music. But like the authenticity is what people really connect, connect to. And I love that you guys are just yourselves. Appreciate that, Appreciate man. Appreciate that, dude. That means a lot. The new yeah. album? Go ahead. If we get to we get this album up to number one, we got to get back on here and have a number one party where we're all drinking. I'm ready to do it. It's Friday morning. Give me five more hours. I'm going to be pounding the whiskey right with you, man. I got a few, a few more Zooms to get out of the way where I need to be, like, crystal clear. <laughs> and then bombs away, bombs away until Monday. <laughs> bombs away. <laughs> guys congratulations such a fun chat let's see you go to number one i hope i hope you do just because i want to see you get ripped and enjoy it oh, but uh, get crazy. you guys are awesome thanks for a fun chat thanks boss thanks brother it's good to see you man see you, brother all right take care all right folks that was low cash make sure to check out the brand new album it's called woods and water those guys are awesome. Only the best of success for my guys at Low Cash. Great chat. Next up, the man plays Nacho on Better Call Saul, one of the best shows on television. They're heading into season six and the final season of the iconic show. We actually also talked to him about the Bob Odenkirk situation. Michael Mando also voices Voss, one of the greatest villains in gaming history. They're celebrating a decade on Far Cry. Bunch of brand new content they're releasing around that. Awesome dude. Here he is, Michael Mando. All right, we've got a great day on The Endless Hustle because I've got one of the stars from one of my favorite shows and honestly, one of the best shows on TV. I know you know that, Michael Mandel, right? Like, not Better Call Saul. Everybody loves this show. I mean, what's it like when you walk down the street? Do people just scream Nacho at you left and right? I get I get a couple of characters. One of them is definitely Nacho. I would say Nacho and Voss from Far Cry 3 are the two biggest things. And, you know, being on a show like Better Call Saul, I have to say it all goes back to the writing. You know, Peter Gould and Vince Gilligan set such an incredible culture with Breaking Bad. And, uh, you know, I feel very honored to be a part of that team. So Voss is something, I'm not a gamer, right? So I had no idea how big a thing this Voss thing was. Right. And then as I'm preparing for this interview, I'm like, oh shit, this is like a huge deal. So for all the non-gamers like myself, Right. Explain what Voss is, what's happening now. I'll just throw the ball to you so you can do a great job with it. Well, thank you. Um, what, how can I say this? Voss, well, I'm not a gamer either. So to be frank, both of us, my, my career really picked up 
off of a game, which is very unusual. It went, it, it was really the definition of viral. So I did this kind of like gig that I, in this kind of weird place with like wearing CGI helmets and red cameras. My career was just starting. I had just come out of theater school and I did this little monologue that was filmed. So you're, you're technically like in the, in the computer, you know, everything you do, your face, your hands, your voice is recorded simultaneously. I do this small monologue and then I find out a year later, it was released on this thing called an, the E3 convention in Los Angeles. And it was like basically the video game convention. And it literally goes viral within weeks. The, the monologue goes viral within weeks and starts off my career. And that character is Voss, who ends up being, you know, one of the most iconic sort of video game antagonists in gaming history. Wait a minute. You had no idea. Like literally you're filming this monologue. It right. ends up at E3. And next thing right. you know, you're this video game character. That's crazy, no, dude. No, no, no idea at all. I, I really didn't know. I, I, I thought the monologue was really fun. The team was incredible and the character was done through improvisation. So I really co-created the character with them from the looks, the way he looked, his hair, you know, and even the dialogue, rewrote a lot of the dialogue. It felt like we were doing independent theater with this, with a bunch of these guys who were kind of like really into computer games and comic books and stuff like that. And I, I was having so much fun, but I didn't think when that, when I did the contractor agreed to do it, I didn't think this would ever turn into anything. And it actually ends up putting me on the map internationally and by accident, it really goes viral. And so they bring the character back and they put him on the cover of the game. And then we do a live action movie in Thailand and we shoot a little scene in Montreal live action. So I'm actually the character in real life. And that really starts off my career and helps me land uh, Rookie Blue and Orphan Black. And from there, Better Call Saul. I mean, I've heard every story on this show. That is definitely up there for one of the more unique breakthrough stories of all time. Like, oh, that's yeah. so cool. Right. And I have to say thank you to the fans because it, it was really like the, it was a, the, the genuine reaction of the fans that, that brought this character back. And to be honest, when I, when I heard the monologue for the first time, which is this kind of iconic line about the definition of insanity where he quotes Albert Einstein, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. And he's obviously gone insane. And um, they had used the rehearsal footage because I had, I had an accent. And then the original footage, I lost the accent. So I thought they released the wrong footage. It, it was like this kind of like two weeks of hell that ends up turning into the best thing that happened in my life and really starts off my career. How do you get cast in the Breaking Bad universe? How does that whole thing happen? You know, honestly, it was like serendipity. It was, it was an unbelievable experience. And until now, you know, I, I pinch myself and I say, how did this happen to you? Like, how did you get here? You're this kid from Montreal who does theater and like very kind of like um, never met, never been to Los Angeles, never met anybody famous in my life. And what happened was that the, um, well, it's kind of an interesting story. I'm at my father's house, God bless him, before he passed away. And my father and my brother are watching the last two episodes of a show that I've never seen. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching this, the last two episodes of Breaking Bad. And I'm going, damn, this is so good. And at the end of every show, you've got the name Vince Gilligan that comes in in the middle of the screen. And I make a mental note to myself. And I even tell my father, I say, I'd love to be in something like this. 
And my father says to me, you know, maybe in a few years, I, I, I don't think you're, I don't think you're, you're, you're there yet. You know what I mean? LA is a far place and America is very far from here. He didn't, he wanted to kind of manage my hopes, right? Two weeks later, I get an audition and I recognize the name Vince Gilligan. And I just kind of like lose my mind. I say, this is, this has got to be destined. This can't be a coincidence. I do the audition. I'm incredibly proud of it. Right before I send it, it's like one in the morning. I realized I forgot to record the sound. So I have to call back my friend and get him back over to my place in Toronto at like four in the morning to retape this audition, to send it back. I resend this audition. And in my gut, I get a feeling that this is going to mean something to me. A couple of weeks later, I get a call from Sony. They want to do a screen test. I go, I do a screen test with Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould. And then you go through processes, which is kind of like nerve wracking, you know, like, you know, that Thursday at 5 PM, AMC is going to see it. And then they call you and they say, you know, AMC likes you. Then Sony's got to see it next Monday at like 7 PM. So you're going, okay, this is Monday. They're watching it now. I wonder if they like me or not. So you go through a series of events like that until you finally get cast. I listen, I've, t I've heard from all actors, the casting process is legit. Like the worst, like, not knowing, I had one actor on recently who told me that he had auditioned for something, killed the audition, right. and then got a call from his agent, didn't pick it up because he just didn't see his phone ringing. <laughs> yeah. And then the agent said, whatever you do, don't listen to my voicemail. Called him back and he picked it up. And he goes, yeah. oh, he goes, you didn't get the part, sorry. When he told him on the phone call, in the voicemail, the agent said, I'm sorry, the, in the voicemail, it was from the, the casting agent saying he had gotten the part. Right. So the agent was telling him not to listen to the casting agent's voicemail because right. he called the wrong person to tell him. So he had oh, called this God. actor. He, he, oh, poor guy. Oh, that's I, I totally fucked up that story, but you get the gist of it. I get the gist. I, you know, he, I, got the, I, he got a call, but it was the wrong person. His agent's like, don't listen to it. Oh, yeah. man. Can you, so, yeah, yeah it's got to be nervous. But you know, what? You know I, obviously I've had, I've had things like that happen to me where, where you're up for a part and for like a month and a half, they keep calling you and they tell you, you're the guy, you're the guy, you're the guy. Don't take anything else, please, please, please. And then you find out at the last second, they're going in another direction. So you, you get a lot of, or, or you find out that the dates don't work, which is the absolute worst. I've and there's offers. nothing you can do. You're no. like without breaking contracts and getting sued. Yeah, yeah. that that's probably the, the, the most kind of like, um fulfilling because you know they they like you for the job but heartbreaking because you, you're like man this could change my life and i really want to do this role it's like a blockbuster film and you're going god i i can't do it it's just an opportunity i can't ever take so obviously coming off of breaking bad you got to figure better call saul is going to be a big hit breaking bad just goes out into the sunset on an all-time high it's considered one of the greatest dramas, even to this day, of all time. Right. Saul Goodman was such a fantastic character, and obviously Odenkirk crushed it. So you go into that, you get the part. Do you have a general idea it's going to be something? Like, did you know right away? That's an amazing question. And to be frank with you, I think um, that's how my relationship with Bob started. You know, we, we, I remember when I went to Albuquerque, I was kind of one of the last actors to arrive. They had already shot the first episode and done all the kind of meet and greet. So I didn't know anybody and I'd really never been to the States except once. So I was like a Canadian immigrant 
who's in LA looking at, who's in New Mexico, looking at the deserts going, God, this is where they shot all those Westerns that I've watched my whole life. And this is where they shot Breaking Bad. And that was a surreal moment. And I remember Bob and I going to, um, for, I think it was breakfast. Like we were having salads. Like I, I can't remember exactly, but I just remember looking into his eyes and him looking into my eyes and us going, this can't be Breaking Bad season eight. Like there's no way we're gonna we're gonna be able to do take one of the greatest shows of all time and top it off with like a new season of that show. We'd had to approach it completely differently, and we had to make it Better Call Saul season one. And and I think that that mindset helped us a lot. Where we said we have to find our own identity. We we can't put the pressure of what they did on Breaking Bad. We can't try to be Breaking Bad. We have to be ourselves. And I think that's the approach we took. But to be frank with you, we felt the ghosts of like Aaron Paul and Brian Cranston everywhere we were. And uh, and obviously then Gus came back and Jonathan Banks. And so it, it was it was amazing. It was a great experience. Obviously, Odenkirk just went through this incredibly scary, life-threatening condition and having a heart attack and almost biting the bullet, which is he's one of our great actors. When you, where were you when you first heard about that? And what were your thoughts as soon as you heard about it? Oh man, we were about to do the, um, we were about to do the photo shoots for the, for the season. And I was in Albuquerque and uh, I, I, I can't talk too much about it because I think the, the production wants it more or less under wraps, but um, it, 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 I, I got a call from an AD and, and I couldn't believe it. It was like really one of those moments where you realize and it was our final season and so much crazy things is happening. And you realize this is real life. This isn't, our show is so intense and our characters are going through so much. And you realize this is real life. This is, this is my friend. This isn't happening to Jimmy McGill. This is happening to Bob Odenkirk. And the, the, the whole cast got together. I called Vince and Peter and Melissa right away. And I said, you know, anything I could do to help. We all wanted to go to the hospital and we couldn't. And it was crazy, you know, he visited me in my dream <laughs> that night. And I woke up at like three in the morning being totally freaked out. He, he came in my dream and he asked me to go for ice cream with him. And I remember waking up going, what the hell does this mean? Why the hell is he in my dream right now? That then, sounds like a Sopranos moment when Gandolfini would go and end up in dreams anytime there was some kind of life altering moment in his life. Man, it was unbelievable. And then I ended up, you know, he ended up thank God being totally fine. And then we ended up shooting and I went for a walk with him in Silver Lake. And it was like, he had just come, come out and he's, you know, told everybody he's fine. And we went hiking and um, we were walking around and it was like all the, all the Emmy award winning people from, from the world were like calling his phone. And we ran into like John Hamm was calling him or left a voice message. And we ran into uh, Sarah Silverman in the street it was like a, a really weird, like Truman Show moment. Everybody on the street would wave and say, "Thank God you're okay, Bob." It was like it, it was a really interesting, um, interesting afternoon. He must have also realized at that moment how beloved he is. He's like one of those guys. It kind of is like the Norm McDonald thing, where Norm McDonald here he is, like this iconic comedian. But I don't even think he would have understood the outpouring of love that he received when he passed away. And you, you really do realize how much certain people end up as a touch point in, in other people's lives. Absolutely true. You know, he got to he got to, to to see what it was like to shut his eyes and open them back in and see how the world reacted. And 
you know, to nobody's surprise, he was, he is so beloved. And I, I wouldn't, I could forget I was, you know, at the gym and I was watching, it was like all over the news. Like you couldn't escape it. You know, you go for pizza and everybody's asking you how Bob is. It was like, uh, you know, and he's been around for so long. He's done, you know, he wrote for Saturday Night Live. He wrote for, I think, Conan and Ben Stiller. And he had uh, um, his HBO show with David Cross. I mean, an incredible stand-up comedian. So he's he's really a national treasure. I mean, really not. I'm I'm not uh, I'm not exaggerating. I think he really is. No, agreed. So I saw a great picture of you on skates. I work with the NHL, and oh, I really? had to understand: Are you a hockey player? Do you play hockey? Yes, sir. I do, man. I I grew up in. I'm Canadian. I'm French Canadian. I kind of grew up in Africa. I grew up in Ivory Coast and Ghana, playing soccer my whole life. And then when I came back as an early teenager, back to my country of birth, I realized there's like winter for six years and I couldn't play any soccer. So I had to, I had to learn to play hockey. I ended up playing competitive double A AA and triple A hockey. I played left wing and I, I loved it. I, I think hockey's until this day is one of my favorite top two or top three sports. So you were actually good. It wasn't just recreational. You were actually really good. I was, yeah, I was really, I'd like to think I was really good. Yeah. I mean, I was playing competitive. I remember my first, um, my first tryout, my father signed me up for the, a tryout for like a double A team and I could barely skate. And I think that's what made me really good is I didn't realize this was like the highest level and I was so bad, but I tried so hard during that tryout. I think it sort of changed my mindset. And from there on, I kept, you know, practicing every summer for the next winter. So let's talk about who you're a fan of. Who do you like? Favorite players? Give me the whole thing. Okay, well, I, 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 favorite is always a big word, but you know who I really like? Pavel Bury. You remember Pavel Bury? Of I course. Think yeah, Pavel Bury, I really, really like. Joe Sackick, Mario Lemieux, um, Eric Lindros. Um... I'm from Philly, by the way. So I grew up watching Lindros. Right. Dude, he was he was so tough, man. He that yeah. guy was like I stood next to him in Philadelphia one time. I'm six two, probably like a buck eighty five. Yeah, I stood next to Lindros. It was like a bear. It was he was oh, probably really? like six four, six five. Shoulders were like this, and you're just like, and this guy can skate. Damn. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and yeah, Rockham Sockham. You know, I used to watch those things. It was like one of the funnest things for me to my brother to do. And then we'd play roller hockey in the summer. That's awesome, man. I always love talking to celebrity hockey fans and people who've played hockey. I just think it's so cool because you have a ton of like big celebrity hockey fans. Like Will Farrell's a huge fan. Snoop Dogg loves hockey people you would never expect. But then I saw the picture of you on skates. I'm like, I wonder if Mando can play. Yeah, you saw it where on Instagram? It was it was somewhere on your social media. It was a picture. Yeah, probably on Instagram, yeah. And I, I'm like, he's probably a big Canadians fan, so I figured you were probably a Canadians guy. I wasn't. I was a Quebec Nordique fan. I was. I, I liked the, the the Nordiques before they moved to became the Avalanche. Yeah, you should have been because I'm born in Quebec City, right? Yeah, no, I it, and actually, it's funny because obviously the Avalanche have had such a great run since they moved from yeah, Quebec. But then exactly. if you were a Canadians fan, I was going to be like, well, you had a pretty good year last year. Cause I was talking to Kevin O'Leary from shark tank and he's from Montreal originally. Oh, and he was oh, just yeah. talking about what it was like getting to, uh, getting to watch him in this year's Stanley cup final. So it was pretty awesome. Yeah. So Nacho, 
this the character has become such a fan favorite it's he's been such a breakout when did you realize that he had become a fan favorite you know um i when when i wrote that when i read that first scene in um the desert in season one episode two and he's dealing with tuco and the way it was written and the way he was dealing with tuco and then he goes and meets Jimmy McGill in his office and he says, you know, this deal about the Kettleman. I think it, I knew from there and even from the audition that they were thinking of something special and very kind of iconoclastic. The, the, the description of the character was the kind of guy who would not use uh, force if he doesn't need to. And in the audition, Vince Gilligan said to me, this is a guy who would not squash a bug with a sledgehammer. And that that really set me on a course, but I didn't think it would take this this I don't think he I didn't think he would be this iconic in the sense that I didn't think he would represent sort of the prodigal son, you know, the 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 person who loves his father so much that he's willing to sacrifice everything for the love of his father, who has no kind of material gain or material interest, kind of this uh, redemption story. I really didn't think it would be that. I, I thought it would be like a gangster who would build up and and uh, want to be really powerful. And what's so interesting is he he gets exactly that. He gets at the top of the echelon in the cartel world, but wants absolutely nothing to do with it. I never thought it would go that way, which I think is what made him so special and gave him so much heart. Dude, you're great on the show. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Congratulations Thank you. on everything with Voss. It, the whole Voss thing has been a huge education experience for me, but now I understand like why it's such a big deal. So it's pretty cool. This whole Far Cry thing is super cool. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Same here, man. Thanks for a wonderful chat and can't wait to see the final season. I'm super big fan, super excited to see how you guys land the plane with this. Thank you so much. I think, look, I can tell you this. I think I don't think, I know this is going to be our best season. The, the writing is just off the charts. The, the DP, the, the camera team, everybody's just pouring their hearts and soul in this. And it's like a page turner and it's just, it, 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 it hits the ground running. It's really, really special. One thing I did want to ask you before I let you go, any chance of a nacho spinoff? Do you think there's any shot of? <laughs> you'd have to ask Vince and Peter, but I think we're all kind of, I don't know. I, 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 you'd have to ask Vincent Peter, but I think the probability are very small. But I, um, I appreciate you thinking about it. But we'll uh, see. It's a great character, man. You do a great Thank job. Thank you so with much. It. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Pleasure having you on the show, brother. Thank you so much, man. Take care, man. Take care, brother. All right, folks, that was Michael Mando. Make sure to check out the sixth and final season of Better Call Saul on the way next year. But also, of course, all the stuff with Voss and Far Cry. If you're not a gaming fan, you got to learn all about Voss, one of the greatest villains. What, a, what an incredible role for Michael Mando and just an awesome, awesome chat. All right, let's jump into our final interview. Stewie from Succession himself, Aryan Moya, talking about the incredible success of the show, playing that awesome character. He's like Tabasco sauce. A little bit goes a long way. He's, dude's amazing. And season finale this weekend. I can't wait. Been crushing it this whole season. Best show on TV. Here he is, Arian Moyed. All right, we got a great day on The Endless Hustle as I'm joined by my favorite deal maker and favorite deal breaker, 
The man always fucking Kendall Roy up. <laughs> Stewie, I know, Ari, it's awesome. I, you and I were joking beforehand, but I'm like, man, this show, Succession, is the best show on TV. And honestly, could be my favorite show since The Sopranos. So pretty high praise from a TV nut. Thank you, man. I had very little to do with it, but fuck, I feel the same way. I honestly, removing myself from the show, I feel like genuinely like i'm a huge fan of this show <clears throat> best writing on tv the here's the crazy thing so pre-covid i always covered all the hbo red carpets because i'm a tv host right so they're like hey do you want to cover successions red carpet they're like just trust me this is our next great show a lot of veteran actors some people you haven't heard of yet some people like brian cox who've just been around forever but haven't you know blown up to that next level but they're like, trust me, Arthur. So we end up covering it. And they're like, just get past the first four episodes. You're going you're gonna to fall in love. I thought the first four episodes were great. But then after episode four, you're in. And then it goes on that next level ride. And you're like, this is the most legit shit ever. So congratulations. Man. Thank you, man. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's honestly an honor to be on, on the show. It's an honor to like get a chance to like fuck around with Jesse's world and you know, it's just, and, and just, and just be too. That's the other thing that's amazing. Like we are, we as actors and performers get to just like do our thing, which is really a rare thing in this industry. I mean, when you're sitting there, obviously you've had a million, million scenes with Jeremy Strong. That's probably been kind of the guy you've been playing against this whole time. But to see just the work he's doing, he's like doing that level work that, you're like the stratospheres that most actors never reach in any type of project. Did you know right away when you're playing opposite and you're doing those scenes with him, did you know that what he was doing was just magical? I mean, yes, I did know it was magical. Um, I think that everyone on that show is magical. Meaning like anytime we'd be in a big group scene, I'd be like, everyone is on their fucking A game right now. And and Jeremy is obviously, you know, a part of that mix. Like everyone when doing the show, what's amazing about it is like, it's like we are, again, it's hard to talk about myself, but everyone is fucking bringing such beautiful work to it all that you feel like you are magically all aligned in some sort of way that, you know, the gods above kind of like made happen. I mean, the nuances that all of you characters play, just to see, you, at one end, you're looking at a guy or girl or whoever who wants to just take all the power. And then within 30 seconds, it's like damaged little children who just need to be thrown in therapy because they have daddy issues. And they it's, have massive daddy issues. <laughs> but I love your character. Here's what I always love is when you get to meet the actor behind the character, and especially when a character is a ruthless dick, kind of like you yeah. are with Stewie, but then yeah. you come on and you're the most humble dude ever. I'm like, this has got to be fun when you can transform into just ruthless, ruthless dick. How cool has it been to just be, be Stewie? It's like, imagine, you know, taking away all of sympathy and empathy that you have inside your body. Just be like, none of that matters unless the bottom line is the only thing. And then go and act. It's like, yeah, it's a dream come true. And like, honestly, this is all called play for a reason. You know, like we're doing, getting to play these unbelievable, you know, so many of these characters are not like the actor that portrays them. And so it's just amazing to me that now I get everyone coming up to me. is like, yo, you want to do blow in the bathroom, blow in the bathroom? 
It's like, uh, no, I have children and <laughs> I'm an actor. It's called acting. Meanwhile, yeah, they saw your Zoom background. Nobody's offering you blow. They're like, this guy's the biggest family man on the planet. It's true. It's true. And I have a theater company, an education company. It's like, they're gonna, people don't even realize. But you, you get a chance to per perform this character of Stewie, who is a friend to Kendall and has known Kendall forever. And... <clears throat> But also with Kendall, alongside Kendall, for years has been like, we are one day going to rule this whole fucking thing. You and I are going to rule this whole fucking thing. And now all of a sudden you see him, you know, Kendall, Kendallizing everything. <laughs> that's what we, so he's a verb now. Well, that's my question. Is he really a friend of Kendall or is Kendall a tool for whatever he wants? Because he knows Kendall is just so fucked up that... I feel like for Stewie, it's kind of, there is some level of compassion and friendship, but I think there's just as much like this guy's a tool and I can use him for whatever I need. I think there is a level of friendship there. I think they've grown up together. They obviously went to a school together in high school in which I would say they probably talked about we can rule the world one day. And you can't unleash that. You can't un undo that ever. Um, but I also think the thing about Stewie is, and people forget this scene, but in this in in, but it really is pivotal because at the end of season one, where Kendall is trying to get more and more drugs before he goes and gets into the car accident, Stewie is the one that's like, "You don't need more drugs. We're good." So if he were trying to completely manipulate him over and over again, I think in that scenario he would have just been like, "Fine, do more drugs." So I do think that there's care for him, and the beginning of season two. He's basically like, there's a friendship card here. I mean, Jesse wrote those beautiful lines where he's like, that's a friend card here. There's a human thing standing in front of you. That being said, Stewie is about money and winning. And, and the same way that Logan is. You're right. I feel like Stewie is the son that Logan always wanted, but never. Like if Stewie was a Roy, he, there wouldn't even be an issue. Because even though- There would be no show. Yeah, even though Shiv is probably actually the most competent of the kids, for some reason, Logan just keeps fucking with her and won't give it to her. And then this final episode where he was just like, ah, Jerry's kind of, you know, the, the bodysuit ahead of you. I'm like, are you really buying this shit again? Like, really? <laughs> well, to, for Logan, it's all, you know, cut. It's all cutthroat. So I always feel, though, Shiv did the right thing. But when by saying, please don't go after Tom at the end of season two, by not going after Tom, Logan, kind of what Logan did with um, uh, with Kieran's character, with Roman in, in episode one of season three, that's what he needed to hear for him to be like, you're not ready. Yep. Because Logan threw his own, he was going to throw his own fucking son into jail for God knows how long, but because that's the sacrifice. I mean, that beautiful son sacrifice speech that he gave. I mean, it's incredible, dude. Like, how has this show changed your life? Like, are you getting recognized everywhere? Is it, has it gotten crazy like that? It hasn't gotten that crazy, but I can tell when they recognize me. I could re They recognize immediately because they do a little bit of like, uh, oh, oh, like a double take. And then they're like, are you Stewie? They always come in with a little bit. And then you're like, yeah. And then because I'm not like him and I'm kind of doing what I just did to you for those like, I was like, yeah, that's me. 
they're like, no, that's not Stewie. That's not Stewie. So like that happens a little bit as well. You know, it's the, the thing that's really been amazing about being on a show like Succession is that my entire life, I'm an Iranian, I've been, I'm an Iranian immigrant. Before Succession, I played Iranian immigrants, Iraqi immigrants, like everything. And so the moment Succession happens, now all of a sudden I play rich assholes. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that because before we got started, you were talking about you had listened to my interview with your friend Asif Manvi. Yeah, and a lot that. of that interview was him talking about how he was being cast as Terrorist One, Garbage Man Two, and the and then all of a sudden he had that moment, and I forget if it was a daily show or what it was, but he finally broke through and people saw him as more than just terrorist one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for me, very similar but different in a way that I from a very young age at like 25 um, being repped and all, I, I kind of made it a thing like I'm not doing terrorists and I'm not playing victims either. Um, so there was not, all I did was theater. <laughs> so, and I did a shit ton of theater with my company Waterwell and also on Broadway and off Broadway. And, and really that was just kind of like magical and beautiful because really it got me a chance to really dig into like deep characters. I ended up being on Broadway with, uh, with Robin Williams in a show called The Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. And um, I got to play an Iraqi translator in 2003 Iraq that has his whole fucking life lost in front of him. And a the ability to do that was something that wasn't happening in film and TV. It was only happening in the theater. And that's slightly changing now, but I gotta be real, it's not changing that much. <laughs> so we gotta talk Robin Williams. I interviewed him yeah. twice before he died. I always oh. tell people, until you've experienced Robin Williams in person, you can't understand the magnetism, energy, and genius. Obviously we see it on screen, but anybody can be brilliant on stage or screen. If you have rehearsal time or something's written for you. But with Robin Williams, there was some kind of fucking magic. Like the way his mind worked, I've yeah. interviewed everybody on the planet. I've never seen a person's mind work that fast. Like where going in and out of characters, jokes, improving, and you're just like, you, you sit there and marvel at the speed. Was it like that as you're working with him? Was he always in that kind of mode? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, his mind works faster than everybody's. Um, he's always, you know, I, I want to talk about the, how, how fast his mind works, but we were also doing a play. And at the time, it was already a Pulitzer finalist play that he was coming into our company to do. And so we also got a side of him as the hardworking, everyone's trying to make it, you know, we saw him like work the work the material and work the bit and work the idea out over and over and over again. Yeah, Robin's ability to be so fast has, is, has a lot to do in my opinion, especially our dressing rooms are right next to each other. And so, and we were kind of like the two leads of the show. And, and um, every, I would say that the, the, that he was, he has empathy over everything. I'm, I'm holding a post-it stack up right now. And, and he would have empathy about this. So when he's crafting a joke or a bit, he was like, who's the person that made this? Who's the guy that like put the plastic wrapper on it? Who's the, and so as he's coming out, he is giving you every single empathetic thing about every person on there and jokes are just landing because he's thinking about, you know, he's got a mind like that. And, and also he was so generous and so courteous and so, he constantly was giving, you know, my birthday was right around the time of that show. And, 
And true story, they he and my wife threw a, like a surprise party for me, and all the Broadway folks were there. And it was a, it was a fun thing that that, that that happened. And and he's like, I bought you uh, an iPad. It was the iPad two. I was like, oh my god, dude, you did not have to do that. He goes, yeah. Well, they were all out of them. They just come out. And he goes, they were all out of them. So I I called Steve, and then they're they're sending one over. Yep. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. <laughs> I still have that iPad, even though it doesn't work. <laughs> Not bad when you have friends who can call Steve Jobs personally uh, and get you personally, shit. Personally. But you know what really happened? His uh, assistant, Rebecca, called Steve Jobs' assistant, but still, he did it. He did Doesn't it. matter. You'll take it however you yeah, get it. Exactly. Here's, a, here's a question with Broadway. Obviously, any actor you talk to, it could be the most successful. You talk to Daniel Craig, and the guy's probably got a gajillion dollars in his bank account. But if you ask him what he'd rather be doing, probably Broadway, right? Like every, yeah. every He's actor. He's literally coming back. As I know, dude. He... He, well, the guy never has to work again, I'm guessing. So, but Broadway is always the passion. It's such a funny dichotomy because for an actor, they all want to do Broadway, but you can't make the kind of money in Broadway that you're obviously going to make being James Bond or whatever else you end up doing. Like if you end up doing Fast and the Furious or whatever, right? But that being said, when you were, your career was mainly Broadway, were you, Theater, was, yeah. was it like, were you okay being just Broadway or were you like, I've got to break through because I got to make a better living? I'm gonna even um, get even more realistic about what you're saying. I was doing theater, which mostly, mostly means off-Broadway, which I was basically <laughs> making like 200 bucks take home a week at a massive like broad off-Broadway theater. Yeah, I mean, to be real with you, it's the adrenaline rush of doing it live cannot be replicated in film or TV period, the end. And so when, you know, again, we'll talk about Bengal Tiger. I had this amazing line that Rajiv Joseph, who was the writer of Bengal Tiger wrote, which is, I am an artist. I would say, I am an artist. And sometimes the visceral reaction where people in the audience would literally start weeping just by hearing the, those lines is something that you can only get from live theater. And that is a drug. And it's really the only, when you're acting in film and TV, Oddly enough, not succession, but let's remove succession from, from other things. It's all cut up. It's all about the edit. It's all about like, oh, you're going to stand here and they're going to mix it with that. On th in theater, you have no chance. You know, I was just talking, we had the premiere for Love Life last night and I was talking to Will Jackson Harper and, and comedian CP. And we were talking about that, like in the theater or in comedy, if the joke or the bit or the moment didn't work, you got another chance at it tomorrow. In film or TV, you're like, why didn't I fucking do that? Right, right. Because we- No, you're, 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 and the other thing is, and I experience it too, anytime you do anything like what we do, where there's some kind of human interaction that creates whatever form of art that we create. Yeah. There's, when you nail it, when you're rolling with it, there's a magic that, I, I listen, I was a financial advisor for a decade. Mm -hmm. and. I always tell people, you can never understand the drug of what we do when you interview someone you've just found as like iconic in your life, or you just nail it and there was a magic for half an hour when you were talking to somebody. It really is, it's, it's, it's heroin. It's just, it's the hardest career to make happen for anybody that it's, it's, it's like the worst heroin imaginable sometimes until you end up on a show like Succession. That's exactly. great heroin. That's like the greatest thing ever. Well, th that's why I wanted to bring up Succession and why it's different than all these other shows because on Succession, we shoot on three film cameras, old fashioned film. And the camera setups, there is no traditional setup where it's like, oh, we're doing a two person scene. So over your shoulder and over my shoulder. And 
We don't do any of that. The cameras and the camera crews and all three cameras are all in the corners of the room, sometimes 20, 30, 40 feet away. Sometimes we have to say, did you record any of the shit I was doing? Because there was no, we don't even know where the cameras are sometimes. And so in those scenarios, you get a chance to, again, just be, and every scene feels like a one act play. And also not mentioned a lot in interviews and whatnot, but everyone in the show is a theater person. Yeah, no, it's incredible. And you see the training there. I mean, it's funny because it's, you'll see this like Breaking Bad's a great example. Cranston was a journeyman actor. And then all of a sudden he becomes an A-lister because of Walter White. Aaron Paul, same thing, you know, yeah. all the breakthrough. Soprano's another great example. Yeah. Falco and James and, you know, it, it, it's, you guys have that same type, of, same type of dynamic. Now Jeremy Strong's winning every award. Cox is winning every award. Sarah, it's and it's amazing because I imagine that the opportunities. Well, Brian's been working for like eighty-five decades, right? Yeah. But for someone like Jeremy Strong, I would imagine that you know the the world is his oyster now. He's it's his Aaron Paul moment or Brian Cranston moment where it's probably like scripts are coming at him from every direction, and he's the guy who's been steadily working his whole career. But that moment has arrived for him. It's incredible. Yeah, I feel like we're all kind of on that succession gravy train a little bit. You know, does, it, that, does that happen? Like because of it, are you is do the career opportunities instantaneously change for you? Uh, yeah, kind of. I mean, I'm gonna be doing Spider Man. I'm in Spider. I know. I saw that. That's awesome. Now that we could talk about it, but I'm. That's all because they love succession. I'm doing Inventing Anna from for um, Shonda. I'm playing the male lead of Todd Spodek. That's coming out, you know, sometime in the new year, and. Um, that's because of Succession, because they love Stewie on Succession. You know what I mean? So, so that is really, like, that's how it happens. You'll get, like, there will be a reach out to you or your agent, and they're like, we love Arian on Succession. Like, it really just, that instantaneous. Yeah, I mean, it's the show that everyone in the industry loves and adores, and they, and also, I've been doing this for a while. So even though you might not see it or other might not see it, I've been doing this thing. So the industry knows who I am. And so they're like, this is a perfect time. And yeah, it feels like, same with Jeremy probably, like it feels like this is the moment that we've, that arrived, that we've arrived or whatever. Um, but at the same time, it's also kind of, you know, Jay Smith Cameron, who's unbelievable on the show. She has been a journey woman actress. She's done everything. She's done Broadway. She's done major movies. She's done TV shows. And, you know, I was just texting with her recently and she's on a bus again. You know, she's like using the bus still because when it happens to people a little bit later in their career, when they've gone and been traveling up that fucking road so much, it feels slightly like you haven't changed at all. It's like all the same stuff. Like, but yeah, wait till she sees that season five money check. Sorry, wait till she sees the season five money coming in. Then that's when I remember talking to all the, I've interviewed the Sopranos, all the guys and girls like a million times. Yeah. And I'll never forget um, Vincent has store joking around. He goes, I can't believe they fucking killed me off. I wanted to see that season five money and I was <laughs> dying. <laughs> and now they're all millionaires because of it. It's incredible. But because the other part of it is it opens all the other doors, the appearances and the endorsements and God knows everything else you guys get thrown at you when you have a hit show, you know? You know, uh, uh, Nicholas Baum was just on, um, whatchamacallit, Saturday Night Live. Kieran's going to be on Saturday Night Live next Dude, weekend. Page Six just called him New York's most eligible bachelor. Bachelor. And, and you've got girls, 
The best is you've got girls who are like in the article talking about, I slept with him. I His neighbor is literally like, I want to sleep with him. I was sitting there dying. I'm like, this is crazy. Greg the Egg is New York City's most eligible bachelor. It's amazing. And you, and you know what? Let him be. Let the man be. Let us do. Let him do his thing. There's a great thing if you're, I don't know if you're a Barstool fan or not, but he ended up doing a pizza review with Dave Portnoy and Bon Jovi, and it re-went viral again. And I'm just like, man, he is a personality. He's he is he's like kind of Greggy in real life. I'm just like, he's it's got a awesome. little bit of he's got a little bit of Greg in him inside there. Yeah. It's funny, like sometimes when he gets overwhelmed, you could see a little bit of that, but but he also he also writes. He also made some music. I mean, he's versatile, you know. It's, it, he's a real kind of special guy in that way. And by the way, he owns one of the hottest spots in New York with Ray's, him and Justin Thoreau, which you go there past 11 p.m. on a Saturday. Good luck getting in. <laughs> yeah. It's nice to be on succession when those scenarios happen, though. Because <laughs> the moment you show up at 11 p.m., they're like, uh, yeah, you can come in. <laughs> So obviously you'd mentioned you're from Iran, not necessarily the center of arts around the world. You end up coming here. I'm a Russian, I'm the son of Russian immigrants. And mm. at, from being a child of immigrants, the thing that it was re- very difficult to communicate was why I wanted to move into the arts, why I wanted mm. to do what I do. When you decided that you wanted to be an actor, how did your parents feel about it being that they can't, that you guys are Iranian? Was there a pushback? Was there, there you know- was- yeah, I mean, there was some pushback. To be honest with you, like, what was happening, well, to be real, my, my mom already had bragging rights because she had a doctor. <laughs> so, like, she kind of, like, forgot a little bit. But the other thing was, I think my parents, though, they thought that it was scary and kind of, like, not the right thing to do. They also saw that I was okay at it. Do you know what I mean? Like, one thing about, you know, you know, as an immigrant, as an immigrant with parents that don't speak English super well, and all of a sudden become a translator at a young age, um, what would happen is like to try to like uplift the family household, which is always in a little bit of like turmoil, um, joking and making people fucking laugh was a huge commodity, was an asset really. And so um, my parents realized that at a young age, like this guy can make anyone fucking laugh. And so they also realized that. And, you know, it was tough when I didn't get into any colleges for acting. That was fucking, because my mom said to me, she goes, does this mean that they don't want you? And I said, and this is all in Farsi. I was like, yeah, this means that they don't want me. She goes, no, but for acting. I was like, yeah, mom. It means that they don't want me specifically for acting. And then you could see my mom being like, well, why are you doing this? They're like, can't you, know? you just go to med school or like law school Please, or yeah. study econ or something? Yeah, well, the joke in the family is, is that now who's got the last fucking laugh? Boom. Yeah, now they're like, our son's on the best show on TV. By the way, when's the moment you knew it had exploded? Like, what was, was there a moment where you're walking down the street or in a grocery store and just realized, shit, succession's the talk of the town? I, I, I don't, I, I, it would, it's a very complicated answer to your question because while we were shooting season one, I was like, is anyone gonna get this show at all? Are they gonna get what we're doing? And, and I remember having a conversation with Snook, Sarah Snook and Ashley Z- uh, Zuckerman who played Nate um, when we were in like Wales shooting in the, in the wedding scenes. I was like, 
is anyone gonna get at all that we are like really doing something unique and special? So to be honest with you, I didn't really know if people would get it um, or if they thought it would be boring or if they understand the comedy or if they thought it was too real or too gross. And then um, when I, honestly, when I saw that first episode, I was like, oh, this is either going to be super special and super art. I thought it, I thought of it as artistic, to be real with you. So, um, and then I think when the, well, the boardroom episode happened, I think episode um, six, I guess, what side are you on in season one with the boardroom where he was in the tunnel running and, 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 you know, and we were doing all those shenanigans and it was the same episode where I was like, I'm emotionally and physically and whatever mentally behind whoever fucking wins um I, when that episode fucking aired i was like oh this show is that you cannot stop the show it, it, I don't know, you know who the most evil character on that show is of all of them is lady caroline she's the most evil of them all they got to bring her in as a series regular because her one sentence quips are just knives like she's cutting throats left and right <laughs> i think that's what's amazing about what jesse does actually is that he, you know, everyone says to me, there should be Stewie in every fucking episode. And I get it and I appreciate that and I love that. But teaspoons of Lady Caroline and teaspoons of, of Stewie really have a, an ew in it. They have a bigger impact. Do you know what I mean? And last night, did you catch, did you, are you all caught up? No, so, yeah, no, I, I didn't watch it last night. I got the first two episodes on screeners, but I, of course, see in the end when you're in the car and yeah, everything. Yeah, but, in, but even the last episode, you're watching this thing, the impact of Stewie coming in and bringing in a Trojan horse into the cool. It's like, it's like, what the fuck? And the woman, the woman is like, do you want me to check inside? <laughs> you can't. I would love to be in that writer's room as they write this shit. Or like when when uh, Brian Cox is getting on the plane or helicopter and the dude says something, he goes, you want to suck my dick? And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, oh my God, these fucking writers, they've got to just be sitting there in tears writing this shit half the time. I think, you know, one of the things that I've, I've, I know from the writers is that when they are in the writers, one of the first things they do every every day is talk about what they did last night and what they ate because they bring in a little bit of like the human like element of it and then they put it on the Roy's so all of a sudden the Roy's are talking about yeah and I just got fucking stood up and then all of a sudden somehow that's involved I think the writers in this show are just astonishing and also they they don't fucking give you too much they give you just the much you know we're filling in the blanks people love and hate Stewie people love and hate Kendall People hate Kendall after last night's episode when he's like basically berating his sibling. People love Kendall because he's like, finally, someone's berating these siblings. You know what no, I mean? I, dude, this has been so much fun. Like I just being able to, I love how much you love the show as well. Just being able to, as you can imagine with interviews, it can go both ways. Sometimes, even though people have to talk about their projects, you can kind of feel have to talk about their projects. But just the passion you have and how much you're enjoying it, dude, this has been an absolute blast. I I literally, and every, I get to screen the first two. So obviously the second one aired last night. And um, everyone who I know has seen, I think the first seven is, is like, dude, the show's even better this season. I, I and so. By the way, this is also one of those shows where I love binge watching. I hate having to wait. But there is something romantic with this one because it is such a water cooler show 
to wait. And as much as I hate waiting, there is something really cool when I jump on Twitter after an episode airs and just to be able to see the, the conglomerates joint reaction and people geeking out over lines. We have, we have a, a group text between a bunch of friends and we're reciting lines. And I'm like, man, there is something still special about that every week experience. I love it. I think that the binging also doesn't allow for people to contemplate all the nuances of the show. You can write an essay about every episode in detail of every single fucking thing as much as you want because it's so com it's so full. Every line is so fucking full. And so um so succession does that in just like spades. And so I like the fact that every week get to we have to wait a week and talk about it. Arian, this has been an absolute blast. Congratulations. Thank succession. You, Love life, Spider-Man. And you're awesome, dude. You're my number one boy. All right, folks, that was Arian Moyed. Make sure to catch the season finale of Succession this Sunday night, 9 p.m. on HBO. All right, folks, that's episode 118 of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle in the books. Make sure to subscribe, rate, show us the love. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Arthur Cade. On Instagram, I'm at It's Me, Arthur Cade. Endless Hustle on Twitter is at Endless Double underscore Hustle. On Instagram, at Endless Hustle Pod. We're back next week with a bunch of great new guests. Closing out the year strong. You guys are going to love the rest of our year's guests. Really great stuff coming up. So that's pretty much it, folks. Have a great weekend. I'm, as always, Arthur Cade. Keep endlessly hustling. Have a great, great weekend. Talk to you then.